Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day you have given us. Thank you for life. Thank you for the privilege of having your word. Thank you for the privilege of being your children. And Lord, we especially thank you because you have given us prophecy so that we can see exactly where we are in the flow of history and where things are moving to so that we can trust in you with absolute confidence that you're in control and things are moving to an end, the end that you have established. We ask, Lord, that you will be with us tonight as we study this lesson on Elijah. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne boldly. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, let's start at the very top of our lesson. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. In fact, he was the greatest prophet in the Bible. His importance can be seen in the fact that he appears time and again in Bible prophecy. Actually, the Bible speaks of three Elijahs. And uh, i just like to remark that the Bible actually speaks of four Elijahs. Uh, there are three main ones, and then there is another Elijah, which I have not included in the lessons. Uh, we could have a whole lesson just on that one. And that is the Elijah that lived during the period of the Middle Ages. Um, there's a special Elijah there. You can read Revelation and you'll find that uh, the woman flees to the wilderness. Uh, there she's fed by God. She's there for three and a half years. Um, and she's persecuted by a woman called Jezebel. It doesn't rain during that period. You see all the parallels? Uh, Revelation has all kinds of parallels for this Elijah, but we don't have time to study all of the prophecies. Maybe one of these days we'll have uh, Prophecy Made Simple Part 2, <laughs> and we'll study 20 other prophecies. Would you like to do that sometime? Yes. Maybe Ezekiel 38 and 39, and uh, uh, maybe a few other prophecies, like the prophecy of Joel, and maybe some of the minor prophets. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, okay, well, I see lots of you saying yes, so we would have quorum. We have at least two or three. Uh, <laughs> the Lord said, well, there are two or three gathered together in my name. So anyway, going back to the lesson, we call the first the historical Elijah. The second we are going to call the prophetic Elijah. And the third and the last one we shall call the apocalyptic Elijah uh, from the word apocalypse, which is the name of the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation begins the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the apocalyptic Elijah is the last Elijah. Now we want to start by studying the historical Elijah. And the first thing that we want to deal with is to discuss the three enemies of the prophet Elijah. But before we study the three enemies of Elijah, it's absolutely important for us to understand one principle, and it's this. Whenever Elijah appears, his three enemies always appear with him. Elijah never appears in history by himself. Whenever you find Elijah, whether it be John the Baptist, or whether it be the historical Elijah, or whether it be the end time Elijah, whenever he appears, his three enemies appear with him. So if there's going to be an end time Elijah, like it says in the book of Malachi, that end time Elijah must have how many enemies? 
must have three. And they must relate to Elijah in the same way that the three enemies of the historical Elijah related to him. In other words, there's a parallel. The Old Testament story is a type or an illustration of uh, greater events to occur at the end of time. In other words, the persons in the Elijah story become symbolic of worldwide movements. Are you with me? Now, let's discuss the three enemies of the historical Elijah. The first enemy of Elijah was King Ahab, Ahab who married Jezebel. Jezebel was the shadow ruler because we are told that Ahab what? Sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And why did he do this wickedness? Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Now, it's true that behind every great man there is a great woman. But it is also true that behind every evil man there is an evil woman. If you just like one side, that's no fair. Because every coin has two sides. But anyway, the story specifically says that Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. In other words, who is the dangerous figure in this story? The dangerous figure is Jezebel. She's moving all the strings. That's very important because we're going to find a harlot in Revelation that does the same thing. Now let's go to our next, uh, let's go to the note. Ahab did not have a mind of his own. He had a weak, unstable, and compromising character. He was like putty, easily manipulated by a strong-willed Jezebel. The weakness of Ahab's character and the vile character of Jezebel can be seen in the story of Naboth. Did you read the story of Naboth? Did you read it? Amazing. You know, um, Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard because he wants to convert it into a vegetable garden. And so he says to Naboth, I have a better piece of land that I can give you for yours. And Naboth says, no dice, because this is, uh, this is the land that I received as an inheritance from my ancestors. We're not supposed to sell our land. You know that as king of Israel. And so uh, Ahab got all depressed. And he didn't know what to do. So one day Jezebel comes in and uh, she sees him all downcast. She says, how come you're so downcast? And, and Ahab says, well, the reason why is because I want to trade, uh, you know, uh, Naboth's vineyard, which is right next to the palace, uh, for another better piece of land, and he doesn't want to do it. Jezebel says, no problem, I'll take care of it. And so she, she gets these individuals to bear false witness against Naboth that he blasphemed against God, and lo and behold, Naboth is gone. And Jezebel says to Ahab, the vineyard is yours. That's the type of woman that Jezebel was. She had no feelings. She had no qualms about, about uh, you know, just killing somebody in cold blood. She was a murderer, according to this story. And the end time, Jezebel is going to be a murderer also. So you see, and by the way, the, the Bible says that uh, she took uh, Naboth's seal and she signed his name to the decree. I mean, I mean, she took Ahab's seal and signed his name to the decree. And so, basically, she, she had free reign to the signature and to the seal of the king to do whatever she wanted. Number two, the second enemy of Elijah was Jezebel. 
Jezebel was the shadow ruler of the kingdom. This is made clear in 1 Kings 21, 89 and verse 25, where we are told that Jezebel what? Wrote letters. letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. seal. Did she need to use the king to accomplish her purposes? Did she need the authority of the king? Yeah. Yes, she did. She couldn't do it on her own. She had to have the king. That's important. What Jezebel wanted, she got by influencing the mind of the king. Jezebel is called what? That's not the word I was looking for there. She's called the mother. Right? Yes, she's called the mother there. She's a mother. That's that, that key word that I want you to write there. And she committed what? See, you're using different versions than the one that I gave you for this seminar. <laughs> and it makes it hard. Uh, what is the word in our seminar Bible? Harlotries. Yes, that's the word that I want. If she committed harlotries, she must have been a harlot. See, if, if, you, if you get whoredoms, then you can't connect it with Revelation. Are you following me? So it says she committed harlotries. She was a harlot. She's the mother. And she was involved in what? Witchcraft. What is the foundation of witchcraft? What doctrine, what false doctrine lays at the foundation of witchcraft? The idea that when a person is dead, he is not dead. The only reason a witch feels like she can communicate with the dead is because she believes that the dead aren't dead. So you catching a picture? Interesting picture. Later on in Revelation, we're going to find another harlot who's filled with sorceries, according to Revelation 18, and whose kingdom is filled with devils and evil spirits. Why? Because it also teaches the same doctrine of the immortality of the soul. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to the note. Jezebel is definitely called the harlot mother, and she was involved in the occult. It would be well to remember that the foundation of all occult practices in the, is the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Number four, Jezebel led Ahab and Israel into the worship of what? Idols. Of idols. In other words, she's also guilty of introducing what? Idolatry. So at the end of time, this end time harlot must also lead her peoples into worshiping what? Into worshiping idols. Do you think you know who this harlot might be? Huh. We've already studied this harlot under the name of Little Horn. We've studied this harlot under the name of Beast. And we've studied this harlot by the name of the man of sin. Let me ask you, does Bible prophecy have a... Uh, do you think that, that this end time antichrist is particularly important? Yeah. I mean, look at all the pictures that the Bible gives us. Harlot, man of sin, beast, little horn, king of the north. It must be that God wants us to know what this system is. 
And that's why he gives us so many different pictures of this system. Are you following me? Now, let's notice number five. Jezebel hated what? The prophets of God. And shed the blood of many of them. She especially, especially loathed Elijah. We are told that Jezebel did what? She slaughtered the prophets of the Lord. Was she a murderer? Against anyone who disagreed with her? Who did she use to murder the prophets? The authority of whom? Of the king. The authority of the king. You're thinking about the second Elijah. But the second Elijah is very... What we're going to find, let me just mention this, what we're going to find is that the end time Elijah takes images from both of the first Elijahs. Because the end time Elijah, you see, in the Old Testament, the the followers of Jezebel, those who do the biddings of Jezebel, are called the false prophets. In Revelation, this same system is called the false prophet. But in the New Testament... The false prophets are not called false prophets, they're called the daughter. And so in Revelation 17, the harlot has daughters. So two different pictures. False prophet, daughters, is the same as false prophets in the story of Elijah and daughter in the story of the New Testament Elijah. Are you following me? Now let's notice number six. Jezebel imposed the false worship of the sun god, Baal. Baal. I find it interesting that Baal was the sun god. They were worshiping the sun god. Of course, at the end, nobody's going to be worshiping the sun. (laughs) Nobody's stupid enough to worship the sun. (laughs) Except those those people who are still uh, over in Africa somewhere that haven't been discovered by civilization. We'll leave that for later. Food for thought. Actually, the religion of Baal was a mixture or blending of the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Baal. If you told the Israelites, you're not serving the Lord, they would say, oh yes we are. Because what they had done, they had mixed paganism with the religion of Israel. Is this true of the end time, harlot? Hmm. You can already see we haven't even done the, the study of the end time Elijah and you know what we're talking about. This is seen by Elijah's words to Israel on Mount Carmel. How long will you what? Falter. Between two opinions. What did they want? They wanted God and they wanted what? Baal. They wanted both. They wanted to mix the religion of both. If the Lord is God, Follow him. But if Baal, follow him. In other words, don't mix your religion with paganism. It's either God or paganism. Not both together. Let's read the note. According to Hosea 2 verse 8, the Israelites attributed temporal prosperity to Baal. Because, you know, the sun rejuvenates the earth. The sun energizes vegetation. Makes it grow. And so uh, prosperity was attributed to the sun god Baal. God complained to Israel in Hosea 2 verse 8, For she, that is Israel, did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold. Who was the one who gave 
uh, Israel grain, new wine, and oil, and gave her silver and gold? God did. But to whom did Israel render these gifts in recognition of him as the creator? Which they prepared for whom? For Baal. Baal was considered, the sun god was considered he who would bring prosperity to Israel. Number seven. The false prophets of Baal. This is the third enemy of Elijah. What is the first enemy of Elijah? The king. The civil power. Who was the second enemy? Jezebel. Who was the third enemy? A group called the false prophets of Baal. And by the way, somebody asked me, where does it say that they were prophets? Well, the fact is that at Mount Carmel it says that they prophesied from the morning until the evening. Last I knew when you prophesy, you're a prophet. <laughs> so the false prophets of Baal and the false prophets of what? Asherah. Do you know who Asherah was? Asherah was the moon goddess. In other words, in Baal and Asherah, they were worshiping the sun and the moon. By the way, the moon goddess was called the queen of heaven. You can find it in the book of Ezekiel. Is there a religious system today who worships someone called the queen of heaven? Hmm. Food for thought. Are you with me? You say, what religion is that? Well, we'll leave it for later. <laughs> that way you'll keep on coming. In other words, they were sustained by whom? By Jezebel, because, because they ate where? They ate at her table. And you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Who sustained this apostate uh, group of prophets? Jezebel. Did they do her biddings? Yes, they did. Through these false prophets, Jezebel proliferated the religion of Baal and maintained a stranglehold upon Israel. Now let's talk about the role of Israel. What I'm going to say now is in the lesson, but I'm going to underline it. In the Bible, Elijah is always sent to those who profess to be God's people. Elijah is not sent to the Philistines. He's not sent to the Babylonians. He's not sent to the Assyrians. He's not sent to the Egyptians. The role of Elijah is to rebuke those who claim to be God's people but have gone astray from the word of God. Must that mean that the end time Elijah is going to have a special message for the Christian world? What do you think? Absolutely. It will be primarily for the Christian world. Because Elijah always is sent to Israel, to those who claim to serve God, but to those who are in apostasy against God. Now let's go to number one at the bottom of page one. The three enemies of Elijah controlled the vast majority of those who claimed to be God's people. We are told that Ahab made Israel sin. Was it only Ahab who made Israel sin? No, because we saw that Jezebel manipulated whom? Ahab. And who were the instruments of Jezebel? 
the false prophets of Baal. In other words, all three were the ones who led Israel to sin. False trinity. False trinity. In our next lesson, we're going to discuss that. Thanks for bringing that up. We're dealing here with a false trinity. And in Revelation, there's a true trinity and there's a false one. There's three true angels and there's three false ones. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Number two. Those who claim to be God's people. Who? Who are we talking about here? Those who claim to be God's people were so deceived that they sought Elijah in order to kill him. Who do you suppose at the end of time is going to try to kill God's faithful people? Might it be other people who claim to be God's people? I can't hear you. How many groups do we have here in the Elijah story who claim to be God's people? Two. You have those who are in apostasy and you have Elijah and the 7,000 who did not, had not bent the knee to Baal. Who wanted to kill Elijah? Israel. At the end of time, who's going to want to kill God's end time Elijah? Well, that has to be the atheists. <laughs> those who don't believe in God. Do you know what? The religious leaders of the world today, of, uh, the religious world of the uh, Religious leaders of the United States today want you to think that the greatest enemy of the church is secular humanism. They want you to think that the greatest enemy of the church today is the fact that prayer has been thrown out of public schools, that you can no longer put religious uh, signs on public property, that you can no longer teach creation in public schools. In other words, they say the state is the great enemy. And they believe that uh, the great persecutor of God's people is going to be some atheistic antichrist. My Bible tells me that those who will try to slay God's people are others who claim to be God's people. Is this story clear? Number three. The children of Israel had forsaken God's what? God's covenant. They had torn down God's altars. altars and killed the Lord's altars. prophets with the sword. Now let's read the note. It is important to realize that God's covenant included two things as you read the Old Testament. First of all, it included the Ten Commandments. That's why they're called the Tables of the Covenant. There in Deuteronomy 4, 12 and 13. They are the tables of the covenant. But what happened if people broke the Ten Commandments and repented? What did they have to do? They have to bring a sacrifice. Was that part of the covenant also? Let me ask you. Was Israel in apostasy both in covenant law and covenant grace? Yes, they were. Because they were sacrificing to whom? To Baal. And they were breaking God's commandments. In other words, they had forsaken the covenant with respect to covenant law and covenant grace. They didn't have law or grace straight. Now let's talk about the mission and message of Elijah. The role of Elijah was to bring God's apostate people back to the Lord. 
Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel that the people might know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. Now, folks, they can't turn their hearts back to the Lord if they weren't with the Lord at one time in the first place. Correct? I can't say, oh, I forgot my, I forgot my uh, tie. I'm going to turn back and I'm going to go back home. Unless I've been home. And so here Elijah is saying that the purpose of his message is to bring God's people back to the Lord. What is that called in the Bible? It's called repentance. It's also called conversion. Do you know what conversion means? It means you make a U-turn and you go in the opposite direction. Conversion. In other words, you're in the, on the road to apostasy, you turn around and you come back. That's what it means. Now let's read the note. The message of Elijah was directed at those who claimed to be God's people. In the Old Testament, prophets were rarely sent to pagan nations, very, very rarely, and Elijah never. But other prophets were once in a great while. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and Ezekiel has some oracles against Tyre and Sidon, and he also has uh, an oracle against Egypt. But in the vast majority of the cases, Old Testament prophets were sent to Israel, and they weren't received with open arms. The task of the prophet was to bring God's apostate people back to the Lord. And if you read Ezekiel 13, there's a good example. The message of the prophet was never smooth or palatable. The people usually hated the prophet because he was a meddler. A biblical prophet is politically incorrect. He ruffles feathers. He makes people feel uncomfortable. He comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. <laughs> Prophets are never popular and they are always in the minority. Elijah was hated by the very people who claimed to serve the Lord. Now if God raised up a prophet in these days, everybody would love that prophet. Not if history shows us anything. You see, history shows us that the ones that hate the prophet the most are the ones to whom the prophet is sent. <laughs> so if God raised up a prophet today, in, the, in this period of history, and people within the church criticize that prophet, I would say, probably that prophet's on the right track. Just about right. Now, let's go to number two. Elijah rebuked the apostate union of King Ahab with the harlot queen Jezebel. By the way, what would their relationship be called between the king and Jezebel? What, what technical term does the Bible use for that? It's called adultery or fornication. By the way, the word, the word fornication uh, in the Greek is porneia. You recognize that word? Yeah. What word do we get from porneia? Pornography. Pornography. That's right. 
It's a very general term. It includes all kinds of sexual aberrations. Porneia does. Uh, it's translated many times fornication. Sometimes it's translated adultery. What it's talking about is an illicit relationship between one person and another, sexually speaking. Of course, here we're dealing with literal fornication between the king and Jezebel. In Revelation, we're dealing with what kind of fornication? We're dealing with spiritual fornication of the harlot with the kings of the earth. So we need to remember that. Number three, Elijah what? Repaired. Repaired. See, Elijah doesn't bring any new truth. All he does is restore the old truth. Elijah's a restorer, restorer, isn't he? He's going to bring the people back to the old landmarks, to the old truths, to the old time message of the Bible. That's the role of Elijah. Oh, they were with God, but they went away from God, and so the prophet has to call them back to God. Oh no, they were with God. Okay. I'm, what I was saying is that if they never were with God, how could he bring them back to God? Okay. Thank you for making me clarify that. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. Did anybody get that impression? I hope not. Oh. Boy, oh boy, we're in trouble. <laughs> That's just an illustration. Okay, number three, Elijah what? Repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. What did Elijah restore then? He restored which part of the covenant? Covenant grace. The true sacrifice. What did that sacrifice represent on the altar? It represented the sacrifice of Jesus. He did this by taking what? Twelve stones. Do you know why he was taking the twelve stones that were broken down? Is because by putting the twelve stones on the altar, he's restoring Israel, which was in apostasy. One for each of the tribes of Jacob. Then at the hour of the evening, sacrifice. See, he's, he's asking for the Lord to reveal himself. It says he prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this way, Elijah was restoring Israel and the covenant sacrifice, which represented the sacrifice of Christ. Did Elijah preach the gospel? Yes. A forgiveness through the sacrifice of the Lamb. He sure did. Did he also preach the need of obedience to God's commandments? Oh yeah, it wasn't either or, it was both and. Number four, Elijah denounced the false worship of, worship of? Baal. Baal and called people to worship the true creator God. Obviously, if they thought that Baal was the creator, they couldn't think that the Lord was the creator also. Number five, Elijah denounced Ahab because he and Israel had forsaken what? The commandments of God. What else did uh, Elijah restore? Only the sacrifice, only grace, only that Jesus saves us by his death on the cross? Uh-uh. He restored the commandments of God. Did he restore true worship to the creator God? Yes, he did. Now let's go to Elijah and the tribulation. The apostasy of Israel led to terrible calamities in nature. 
Imagine it not raining for three and a half years. What would happen in the United States if nowhere in the U.S. it didn't rain for three and a half years? Just think of it. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> well, California gets its water from everybody else. But uh, what would happen if, if, if there was no rain in the United States for three and a half years? Would you have starvation? Would you have pestilence? Among other things. You would have an outcry, wouldn't you? Would people start looking for a scapegoat? Sure. They'd say Governor Davis was to blame. <laughs> let's not get into a political discussion here. Now, let's continue here where I so rudely interrupted. There was no rain for three and a half years, right? Three years and six months, according to James. As a result, there was famine, pestilence, and death. Why did this happen? Why? Why did, why did this uh, calamity come upon Israel? God said so, that it was going to happen if they forsook the Lord. Notice the prophecy that Solomon gave when his temple was dedicated. A thousand years before Christ, about 200 years before Elijah, the Elijah story. It says, God had said to Israel at the dedication of Solomon's temple, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. What is it that caused the rain not to come? Their what? Their sins, according to this. So who was to blame for the calamities? Israel, because of their apostasy, because they'd mixed paganism with the religion of God. But who was blamed for the calamities? Number two, Elijah was blamed by Israel for the calamities. Ahab said to Elijah, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And what did Elijah say? Well, king, don't get so mad. You know, I'm just a prophet. Take it up with the Lord. Uh-uh. See, the prophet, he doesn't, he doesn't take any, any mouth from anybody. <laughs> he turned right around and he says, It is not I who have troubled Israel. It is you and your father's house. Because you have forsaken the commandments of God and are worshiping Baal. What were the two issues? The commandments of God and what? Worship. Are those the same issues in Revelation? Yes. The final Elijah message is in Revelation 14. Woe to he who worships the beast or his image or receives the mark. And when the third angel's message ends, it says, here are they who keep the commandments of God. That's where the final Elijah message is. We'll discuss that more fully tomorrow. So Elijah was blamed. The people said, kill Elijah and what? And prosperity will return. Is that going to happen again? Do you know Jesus said in John 16 verse 2, a text that we read uh, probably the first or second night, where Jesus says that the time will come when those who kill you will think that they're doing God a favor. Now listen, 
If they think they're doing God a favor, they must believe in God and they must claim to follow God. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, who crucified Christ? Same kind, same believers. The same people that, uh, that uh, Jesus was sent to? Hmm. How did they do it? Could they, could they kill Jesus on their own? Who did they use? The power of Rome. They had to join the church with the state. In other words, what cost the life of Jesus was the union of church and state. That's why God hates the union of church and state. And the religious leaders who are saying this, this idea of the separation of church and state, like uh, the pastor of the First Baptist Church uh, several years ago, uh, biggest church in Dallas, he says, this idea of the separation of church and state must have been the figment of some infidel's imagination. And, and Judge Rehnquist says, the separation of church and state is useless when it comes to deciding cases in the Supreme Court. We ought to abandon that as the criterion. That scares me. When you have ministers of huge churches, when you have the Supreme Justice of the United States, of the United States Supreme Court saying things like that, and, uh, and uh, others like Pat Robertson saying, tear down this wall. They don't know what they're talking about. They haven't studied these stories. <laughs> the union of churches, state, and state, ever so slight though it be, is dangerous. Yes. Well, then is it a good thing that they've taken throughout school and really defined church and state separation? You know what? You can have prayer in public school and you'll still have the same problems that society has today. I know that the surveys have been done well back in the 50s when people prayed in public school. You know, things were not nearly as terrible as they are today. But then you need to remember that back then there was no internet. Back then there was not the rock music we have today. You see, there's so many variables that are not included in those studies. That the fact is that even if you put prayer in public schools today, it's not going to make a difference. Because the place where prayer makes a difference is at home. The place where prayer makes a difference is privately. There has, that doesn't have to be government-mandated prayer in public school. A student is free to pray if he wants. And he can gather a group of kids with him and he can pray with the kids on the school premises. That is constitutional. What is forbidden is school-mandated prayer. Where the school writes the prayer and recites the prayer and expects everybody to be there for the prayer. Are you with me? Now, are we saying that we should cast God out of, uh, out of public school? No. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to teach our kids at home to love God. And to pray. And to have worship. And then our problems will be resolved. You know, uh, it's like people say, you know, Bill Clinton, he was a terrible role model. You're right. He was a horrendous role model, but he's not my role model. There's no politician in the world who's my role model. That'd be a big mistake. My role models are my parents. The pastors, the spiritual leaders that I've known, and the good teachers that I've had. Those are my role models. And so, 
What I'm saying is that the state cannot legislate anything related to religion. And I know that that's a drastic statement, but the minute you start infringing on that statement is the minute you start having problems because, you, because there's no stopping. You study the whole story of the Bible and you find that this is true. Okay, let's go back here to question number four. Elijah was not alone, though he was in the minority. God had a remnant of what? 7,000 7, who had not bent their knees to Baal. There was a bigger remnant than just Elijah, right? Elijah and the true prophets had to flee and hide in caves and desolate places of the land, but their food or their bread and water was provided how? Miraculously by God. Let me ask you, did Elijah go through the tribulation? Was he on earth during the tribulation? You know, I find this interesting. Don't miss this point. When was Elijah translated to heaven? Notice the note. Elijah and the prophets went through the tribulation, but their water and bread were sure. They were also protected from the wrath of Jezebel during this period. Is that correct? Did Jezebel give a death decree against Elijah? It's in 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. She says, if you're alive tomorrow at this time, It'll be a miracle. I'm just paraphrasing. <laughs> she gave a death decree against him. So was Elijah on earth during the tribulation and the death decree? Yes, he was. Was he on earth at the Mount Carmel experience? Obviously he was. When was he translated to heaven? After all of those events. See that they're going to be on planet earth. Yes, and some people say, but pastor, the plagues are falling during this period. True enough. The plagues were falling when Israel was in Egypt, but the plagues didn't touch them. Noah and his family went through the flood, but they were protected by God. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, but God was with him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fiery furnace, but God was in there protecting them. You see, folks, God's people can go through the tribulation, through the period of the plagues, without the plagues touching them. Because God's people are not appointed to wrath. You see, the, period, the plagues are not for God's people. The plagues are for the wicked. And so God's people can go through the tribulation. They will go through the tribulation, in fact. But as Psalm 91 says, and this is in our next lesson, it says that no plague will touch your dwelling. And Psalm 91 is the psalm of the tribulation. Tremendous psalm that describes the period of seven last plagues. We'll deal with that next time. Is this clear? Now let's talk about the Mount Carmel experience. It was not Ahab. Now notice, this is a critical point. It was not Ahab or Jezebel who were encouraged to bring fire down from heaven. It wasn't the king, and it wasn't the harlot. It was rather the false prophets of Baal. But the false prophets of Baal could not bring what? Fire down from heaven. But you know, at the end of time, the deception is going to be even greater than in the days of Elijah. 
because it says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 13 that the prophet will bring fire down from heaven in the sight of men. That is amazing. And I'm going to read you an amazing statement in the lesson tomorrow night on a preacher today who is saying that soon where he's preaching in stadiums, there's going to be tongues of fire falling from heaven to prove that his message is from God. So don't miss the next exciting episode. And he's a very well-known preacher, incidentally. So it's the false prophet that brings fire down, right? Or tries to bring fire down in the case of Elijah and at the end brings fire down. By the way, we're going to notice next time also that uh, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets are really, uh, false prophet are really um, a false God the Father, false God the Son, and false God the Holy Spirit. It's a false trinity. I'm going to prove that to you from the book of Revelation. <coughs> Number two, when Elijah first made the call for a decision, the people answered him not a word. At this point, Elijah's message had little effect. You know, some people say, Wow, oh, if your message is so important, why are there only 150 people here? Good question. But you know the time is coming when all that's going to change? When calamities are taking place? Much more than what we saw on September 11, because it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better when Jesus comes. It's going to get so bad that ultimately people are going to start searching for the truth. And you know what God is going to do? He's going to pour out His Holy Spirit upon those who have the truth. And there's going to be thousands of people that are going to come and they're going to want to listen. Right now, people are, are too comfortable to listen. But the time is coming where the comforts will be taken away and then they'll start searching. And God is going to pour out His Holy Spirit so that they will find what they're looking for. And I long to be alive for that day. By the way, I do appreciate all of you, the 150. <laughs> but aren't there many more people that need to hear this message in this city? I think so. There are thousands in this city that are sincere. They love the Lord. They're searching for what they know not. And God, if they're sincere, God is going to show them the truth. I praise the Lord for that. Number three. Notice the contrast in worship styles on Mount Carmel. So you have to talk about how you worship. Not only who you worship, but how you worship. The prophets of Baal what? Oh, leaped around the altar. They like to dance in the worship service. What else did they do? Oh, they cried aloud. Which means that they like to what? Oh, they like the worship service where they could scream at the top of their lungs. And they what? They cut themselves. Imagine this. Talk about righteousness by works. They thought by doing this they could earn the favor of Baal. Yes, they do. During Holy Week. And notice. And this happened until the, until the time to offer what? The evening sacrifice. On the other hand, how did Elijah worship? He just knelt before the Lord in a solemn, humble, reverent tone, invoked the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His worship style was reverent, solemn, silent, and peaceful. Totally different than the rowdy worship style 
that the prophets of Baal had. Now let's continue with number four. When Elijah's message was joined by the fire from heaven. By the way, what does fire represent in the Bible? Ah, the Holy Spirit. By the way, I, I, I was uh, greatly blessed by the sermon yesterday morning. There's one thing about that text in Revelation 18, verse 1. Do you know who, who that angel is who fills the whole earth? It's Jesus. And you say, how do we know that? Because it says there that he fills the whole earth with his glory. <laughs> so when God's people are preaching that message, they're filling the earth with Christ's glory. The whole earth was filled with his glory. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about this fantastic angel. See, the, the loud cry of Revelation 18 verse 1 is the end time Mount Carmel. See, in the days of Elijah, it was in the evening, it was dark, and fire came down and the whole Mount Carmel was illuminated. But imagine, Revelation says that when this message comes from heaven, the whole world will be illuminated by its glory. <laughs> Don't you want to be alive during that period? Oh man, what a privilege. When Elijah, when Elijah's message was joined by fire from heaven, it convicted the people and they cried out, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Like many people are going to do on planet earth. When the message of Elijah was joined by the fire from heaven, there were only two groups left. Those who insisted on serving Baal and those who chose to serve the Lord. The message of Elijah and the power of the fire polarized all and made all choose to be on one side or on the other. Correct? No offense, people. No longer limping between two opinions. When the fire was joined with the message, you were either on one side of the fence or the other. Is the loud cry of Revelation 18 going to divide all of humanity in two groups? Yes. yes. And those who are lukewarm in the middle are going to have to get hot or cold. No more lukewarm people. Number five. It is impossible to speak about the Creator without speaking about the Sabbath. Because the sign of the Creator is the Sabbath. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. If the Israelites were worshiping Baal and considered Him the Creator, then they were not keeping what? The Sabbath. Because the Sabbath reminds us that there's only one true Creator, God. If they were keeping the Sabbath, they would have never been worshiping Baal as the Creator. Now let's talk quickly about the end of Ahab, Jezebel, and the false prophets. This is fascinating because this is picked up in the book of Revelation. How the threefold union is going to come to an end. It says, Ahab was killed in battle and was eaten by what? Dogs. By dogs. And by birds. birds. Anybody ever read in Revelation 19 where, where the birds are called to devour all of the wicked? Of course, of course these connections are all coincidence. <laughs> Number two. The false prophets were taken down to the brook Kishon. Where is the brook Kishon? Where? Has anybody ever heard of Armageddon? <laughs> Do you know the word Armageddon comes from two words, Har, Mount, and Megiddo. 
so is it just possible that what's going to happen at Harmageddon is symbolized by what happened in the Valley of Megiddo next to the Brook Kishon? Absolutely. Tomorrow we'll study that, Lord willing. Number three, God prophesied that Jezebel would be eaten by what? By dogs at Jezreel. Notice all three of them are consumed by wild beasts. Interesting. Let's read the note. The story goes something like this. Jezebel was left a widow when Ahab was killed in battle, but she was determined to get another king whom she could use to accomplish her purposes. We are told in 2 Kings 9, 89, that she painted herself up like a harlot to impress Jehu. What did she do? She painted herself up to try to impress Jehu. But Jehu was not impressed. He commanded that Jezebel be thrown down. Jezebel had a fall just like Babylon in Revelation. She was thrown down from the second floor of the palace. When Jezebel fell, some of her blood spattered on the wall. And notice this, this is very important. And on the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Is there any place in Revelation that talks about horses trampling something underfoot and spattering blood? Of course, that's a coincidence too. See, what we're dealing here with the relationship of type anti-type. See, what, what happened back there is a figure of what's going to happen at the end. See, at the end, there's not going to be this, there's not going to be these little literal horses that trample on you know, they're splattering blood on them. It, it, it's, it's the symbol that is being used as we'll notice tomorrow. And so, when they went to bury her, they found that she had been eaten by wild beasts. All they found was the, her skull and the palms of her hands. Amazing. Number four. I want you to remember this, this specific verse because it's quoted almost verbatim in Revelation. Ahab's house was destroyed so that God could what? Don't forget that word, avenge. Avenge the blood of whom? Of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. In other words, the blood of those who were slain is avenged, that was slain by Jezebel, is avenged by her death. In Revelation, there's a reference to this almost verbatim. It's amazing. Number five, after Elijah fulfilled his mission, he was caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. You know that? <laughs> this is why he later appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now let's talk about the New Testament, Elijah. It's awful late. You willing to go to 8.30 tonight? Or do you want to end at 8.15? Go for 9. Go for 9? Anybody give me 9? <laughs> we can go through this more quickly. Let's identify the New Testament, Elijah. The New Testament, Elijah, was whom? Was he Elijah in person? No. He was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, the same Holy Spirit that Elijah had is the spirit that John the Baptist was going to have. And he was going to perform a similar work. 
Hope you read those other references, Matthew 11 and Matthew 17. We don't have time to read them now. John the Baptist was not Elijah in person. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah to do a similar work. Now let's talk about the enemies of John the Baptist. Uh, let me ask you, if John the Baptist is Elijah, would, would we expect him to be in bad company? <laughs> of course. See, when Elijah shows up, his three cohorts come up too. Did John the Baptist have three enemies? This is the amazing thing. I don't know how you cannot believe in the inspiration of the Bible when you see how these stories are fulfilled. And I'm sure that Mark, when Mark wrote this uh, story, he didn't have the foggiest idea that he was drawing upon the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. But the story repeats what took place in the Old Testament. Let's go through it quickly. The first enemy of John the Baptist was whom? Herod. The king. King Herod. Was there an enemy who was a king in the Old Testament? Yeah. What kind of character did Herod have? He was a wimp. <laughs> who had a character like that in the Old Testament? Ahab. See? John the Baptist had the same spirit as Elijah did. And Herod had the same spirit that Ahab did. Because the same devil that worked on Ahab worked on Herod. <laughs> See, the whole same Holy Spirit that worked on Elijah did on John the Baptist. Well, that's why they're similar. The same spirit that worked upon Ahab is a spirit that works upon Herod. Like Ahab, Herod had no moral backbone to stand for the right. When he made a wrong oath, he did not have the courage to go back on his word. As we shall see, he allowed himself to be manipulated easily by a mother and her daughter. In the Old Testament, it would have been by Jezebel and her false prophets. Number two, the second enemy of John the Baptist was an adulterous woman named Herodias. How do you know, how do you know that she was an adulterous woman? Because she was living with Herod, and she was Herod's brother's wife. <laughs> the story says so. So she was committing adultery. <laughs> Let's read the note. This woman had a mind of her own, didn't she? Did you read the story? She was strong-willed, and she was determined to use the king to accomplish her purposes. True? She hated John the Baptist and wanted to kill him. Is this almost a reenactment of the Old Testament story? Yes. But the only way she could accomplish her objective was to persuade the king to give a decree to kill John. She couldn't do it on her own. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. Just like Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah, but without the king she couldn't. It is vitally important to realize that Herodias is called the... Don't miss that. The mother. What was Jezebel called? Hmm. Of course, all this is a coincidence. <laughs> she is the dangerous figure in the story, isn't she? She moves all the strings. The third enemy of John the Baptist was Salome. And what is she called? The daughter. Notice, king, mother, daughter. Was this daughter... The image and likeness of her mother. Was she the false prophet of her mother? Was she the spokesman for her mother? Is the false prophet the spokesman for the beast? 
Is the false prophet an image to the beast? And you know how this story develops. You know, uh, Herod was having this party. And they were having this nice, uh, fresh water at the party. What do you suppose they were drinking? With wine. Wine, of course. Only someone who was a little drunk would say, I'll give you half of the kingdom for a dance. <laughs> and so he's having this party. And he says, and, and, and uh, Salome pleases him. And so um, Herod says, you know, ask me for anything you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And the girl immediately says, give me the head of John the Baptist. No. No. Ah, what does she do? He goes to mom and says, hey, mom, what should I ask for? Isn't that amazing? And the mother says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She says, Mom, how would you say something? That's terrible. Is that what she says? No. no. She says, oh, okay. <laughs> Is she just like her mother? She's an image of her mother, and she's a spokesman of her mother. Just like in Revelation, the false prophet is the spokesman of the harlot and an image of the harlot. See how these stories play out? And then, of course, we know what happened. The head is given to the girl, and the girl gives it to her mother. Who's the dangerous figure? Herodias. Who was the dangerous figure in the Old Testament? Jezebel. Who was the dangerous figure in Revelation? The harlot, the mother of harlots, she's called in Revelation 17. Okay, let's talk about the mission and message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's mission and message was directed at those who claimed to serve the true God. Would you agree with that? Yes. To the Jewish leaders, he said, Do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, if he wanted to. To whom is John the Baptist sent? To Israel. Number two, John the Baptist called upon Israel to what? Did uh, Elijah also call people to do that? Sure. We repent from sin, don't we? And what is sin? Transgression of the law. You know, somebody once said to me, the law was nailed to the cross. I said, is that right? Do you ever sin? He says, yeah. And I said, what is sin? And he knew I had it. <laughs> so I had to finish I said it's transgression of the law but how can you sin if the law was nailed to the cross if there's no law there can be no sin and incidentally if there's no sin you don't need Jesus so the fact is getting rid of the law makes Jesus unnecessary that's the devil's real agenda is not to get rid of the law but to get rid of our need of Jesus Number three, the mission of John was to what? To turn, there's that word again, the hearts of Israel to their God. He was to what? To prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Is the last time, the end time Elijah also going to do the same thing, prepare God's people for the second coming of Jesus? Oh, yes. And notice, by turning the what? The hearts of whom? The hearts of the children to the fathers by turning the, I mean, number three, by turning the what? The disobedient 
to the wisdom of the just. So what condition was Israel in? They were what? Disobedient. Does the end time Elijah have anything to say about disobedience? Hmm. To turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make what? Ready a people for what? Prepared for the Lord. The purpose of Elijah is to prepare God's people for the second coming of Jesus. Yes. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, okay. There was a tremendous tribulation for John. He was in prison before he was killed. He had severe trials, tremendous doubts, even to the point of sending messengers to ask Jesus if he was the one to be expected or whether he was to expect another. He almost felt forsaken by God. So did he have a time of trouble? Oh, yes, he did. See, even that, that's not on the lesson. All kinds, see, when you study this more, you find all kinds of parallels. And by the way, some say, but Elijah was translated to heaven where John the Baptist was killed. Do you know why? Because Elijah suffers the same fate as the Messiah whom he prefigures. John the Baptist prefigures the Messiah who dies. The end time Elijah prefigures the Messiah who comes to reign. Are you following me? So because, because the Messiah died, the precursor or the forerunner also dies. But when Jesus comes to reign as king, and king, of, king of kings and lord of lords, the Elijah that prefigures him also lives. Now, the note of number three. Interestingly, when Jesus came, his own people did not know him. Correct? And why is this? Simply because they had refused that Jesus, they refused, refused what? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> Let's go to the last part of the phrase. <laughs> they, obviously mi- <laughs> they obviously misinterpreted prophecy and misunderstood how the Messiah was to come. Did they misunderstand how Messiah was going to come? Were they expecting him in one way and did he come another? Yes. Is it just possible that the Christian world today is expecting Jesus to come in a rapture and he's going to come differently? Yes. Hmm. Food for thought. Number four. Yes. Because they wanted a, uh, they wanted a, wanted a deliverer from the Romans. They wanted a physical deliverer from the Romans. They wanted God to place them at the apex of the world. And they wanted a king that would reign from Jerusalem. And so when Jesus comes and he starts talking about love. And he starts talking about turning the other cheek and everything. This isn't the Messiah we've been expecting. Because they misinterpreted how Messiah was going to come. They took the, the pictures of Messiah that deal, dealt with the second coming and they applied them to the first coming. Now let's go quickly here. Number four, John the Baptist was no innovator. He came to what? Restore. See, he's the restorer. He comes to restore all things. Number five, John the Baptist preached against the adulterous relationship between King Herod and Herodias. He said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Did John the Baptist denounce fornication? Yes. 
Will God's end time people denounce fornication between the harlot and the kings? Oh, yes. Number six, John called attention to Jesus as the what? Oh, listen to this. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did John the Baptist restore, so to speak, the true sacrifice? Grace. Yes, he did. Number seven, John called upon God's people to bear what? Fruit which flows from repentance. The fruit he called for is referred to as the fruit of the what? Don't forget this because in the next lesson we'll deal with the issue of fruit more when we talk about the end time. It is the fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit. And then the next uh, blank, it is the fruit of? Holiness. Jesus referred to the fruit as what? Abiding in his word and what else? Keeping his commandments. All of that is included in bearing fruit. Number eight, John's message was one of separation and judgment, wasn't it? A separation was going to be made between the fruitful and fruitless trees and between the wheat and the chaff. You cannot speak of a judgment without speaking about the commandments because we will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Now let's go to the final Elijah. We'll go through this quickly because we'll pick up on it next time again. Are we to expect another Elijah? How do we know that? Because Malachi 4, 4 and 5 says, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. When is that great and terrible day of the Lord? Verse 1, that's verses 4 and 5, what I just mentioned. In verse 1, it says, the day is coming burning like an oven. Which will leave neither root nor branch. So what coming is this referring to? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the coming of Jesus. Are we, are we to expect another Elijah? Before the coming of Jesus? Certainly. Number two, the last Elijah will be sent by God immediately before the second coming of Jesus. Are you agreed with that? In which, of the, which book of the Bible would you expect to find that message? Revelation. Why? Revelation. Because Revelation is the last book and it speaks about the last events in the history of planet Earth. So if you're going to look for the last Elijah, you have to find him where? In Revelation. And if you want to find his three enemies, you look there too. Daniel. Number three, misprint. The last message given by God to planet Earth is found in Revelation 14, 6 to 12. Sorry, folks. <laughs> by the time I get to the end of the lessons, I'm seeing double. <laughs> we know this is the last message because immediately after it is given by the three angels... The Son of Man is seen coming to the earth on a what? On a white cloud. So the three angels' messages have to be the last message because immediately after the third message is given, Jesus is coming on the clouds. And Elijah was going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes, raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, good deal. Number four. Revelation 14, 6 through 12 contains God's final Elijah message. Can one person accomplish this task? No. Why not? 
because the message is going to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. By the way, the, uh, the three, and let's just talk a moment about the three enemies of Elijah, the harlot of Revelation. Is that a literal woman? Is a harlot a literal woman? Can't be, because she's seated on, on waters which are multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. It must be a worldwide system. Yeah? Must her daughters also be worldwide system? Is it talking about one king she fornicates with or all the kings of the earth? So, I suppose that if the harlot is a worldwide system, her daughters represent a worldwide system, the kings are the worldwide kings, Elijah must be a worldwide Elijah. See how simple it is? That's why we call this prophecy made simple. Yes, the daughters, as we've studied, represents the other denominations who share the teachings of the mother. We'll deal with that a little bit more uh, fully tomorrow night. Number five. To whom do you think this final message is especially sent? To those who profess no religion or to those who claim to be the children of God? Those who claim to be the children of God. Why? Because Elijah is sent to the children of God. The previous two Elijahs. Now, yes. Did Elijah only come to the people who denounce God or they're following the wrong faith? Speaking about those who claim to be Christians at the end of time. Claim. Yes, claim is the key word. Let me ask, well, let me put it this way. If the first Elijah was sent to bring Israel back to God, the second Elijah was sent to bring Israel back to God, the final Elijah comes to bring atheists back to God. What does the final Elijah come for? It must be that he comes to bring Israel. Which Israel? Spiritual Israel. Which is what? The Christian church. Is it just possible that most of the Christian church today is an apostasy? Yes, it is. Sorry to say. You have a Babylon of belief systems in Protestantism and Catholicism today. It is literally confusion. And it need not be because the Bible is clear. Now, let's go number six. How many enemies do you suppose this final Elijah will have? How come? Because when Elijah appears, his three enemies appear with him. By the way, let me just mention something about the Middle Ages. Did Jezebel exist, exist symbolically during the Middle Ages? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's spoken of in the context of the fourth church, Thyatira, which is the church of the Middle Ages. Even non-Seventh-day non Adventist theologians say that the fourth church of Revelation represents the, Middle, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. There's no problem there. But it says regarding that church, you allow that woman Jezebel to do her work in your midst. Now let me ask you, did Jezebel fornicate with the kings of the earth during the Middle Ages? Catholic Church joined church and state. Uh, were their daughters born from the Roman Catholic system? Who were they? The Protestant churches were born from her in the 16th century. Do they reflect the same teachings as the mother to a, to a great degree? What day do they keep? What do they believe about the dead? 
what do they what are they believing about church and state? Hmm. How about changing God's prophetic calendar? Totally different than what we've been studying here in the seminar from within Scripture. Totally different. By the way, this is going to blow your mind, but the ideas that are being taught today, and I'm going to mention names because they've published books, that Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, and others have published, their concepts were directly derived from the Roman Catholic Church. I have a document I wrote called The Changing of the Times. Uh, actually, it's called, the total name is uh, Futurism's Incredible Journey, The Changing of the Times and Its Implications for Seventh-day Adventist Theology. But uh, I show, I document very clearly there that the views that are being taught in Protestantism today were directly imported from Catholicism, including separating separating the last week from the 70 weeks. That was not invented by Protestants. That came from a Jesuit priest who wrote in the late 1590s whose name was Francisco Ribera. So what Protestants have done, they've taken the prophetic system of Catholicism and that's what they're teaching today. And this probably will amaze you. But that's the false prophet. Because the false prophet speaks the same, speaks for the mother. Speaks for the beast. The difference is, though, like this, that back then that they had prophet, prophet was singular. Now it's going to be plural. Of course, it's plural because we're dealing with a worldwide system. Okay, now, number seven, quickly. Oh, six, okay. How many enemies? Three. Who are they? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Babel is composed of what? Of the, oh, number seven, excuse me. The enemies are also spoken of as the mother of harlots, her daughters, and the kings whom she commits fornication with. Number eight. Babylon is composed of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So how many parts does Babylon have? Three. These three powers will gather the whole world to fight against the king of the universe. And listen to what I'm going to say. Don't you think that they're going to fight directly against God? That's not the way prophecy works. You know, that Jesus is coming on the clouds and here they're shooting nuclear weapons at Jesus. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a war against Christ in the person of his people. In that you have done it unto one of these, the least my brethren... You have done it unto me. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In other words, by persecuting the people of God, they're persecuting the God of the people. And woe to those who attack the people of God because they're attacking the, the apple of God's eye. You remember when Israel was crossing the Red Sea? That the, the wheels of the chariots got stuck? <laughs> what, did, what did Pharaoh say? He said, let's go! Let's get out of here! The Lord fights for Israel! See? Pharaoh fought against Israel. And when he fought against Israel, he fought against the Lord. And if it hadn't been for the Lord, they would have all been killed. At the end, the wicked will fight against God's people, but the Lord will intervene to deliver his people. Is this a Christ-centered interpretation of prophecy? Yes. Who's the hero in this interpretation? Jesus. It's Jesus. Finally, 
Revelation 18, 1 to 5, God denounces the sins of Babylon and invites his people to what? To come out. So if you belong to any of those systems, it's time to get out. Question is, will you accept the call? I hope so. Did you like the lesson tonight? Isn't this fascinating? Now, tomorrow night, you got to come, even though it's Monday. Because tomorrow is the end time, Elijah. We'll study the nitty-gritty, the tribulation, the plagues, all of these things, and show how they parallel the story of Elijah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the marvelous way in which you have given us your word. We realize, Lord, that nobody needs to be ignorant about what's happening or what is going to happen. We can with confidence rest in your arms, knowing that even though things get real bad in this world, you're seated on the throne of the universe and you will be there to protect your people. I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight who has not given their life to the Lord, who perhaps belongs to one of these systems where error is taught and error is practiced, that you will give them the courage to come out and to accept your truth. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us. And we thank you for answering our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.